Uh, Jason, maybe you can just start with uh, letting us know uh, what you do, what keeps you busy. Uh, what keeps me busy is I'm a talk radio host based in Seattle. I do a lot of television work on uh, Fox News and some local uh, work, but also, of course, I'm the author of a new book called What's Killing America? Inside the Radical Left's Tragic Destruction of Our Cities. So I would say I'm center left politically. I'm just kind of clinging on there, but I'm very anti far left. I'm very anti woke. I think it would be termed. I spent I spend a vast majority of my time probably left bashing from inside the house. I think so. I don't know. I mean, the situation may be different in the UK as it is to America, but you think this ideology is so like uh, insidious now that it's, it's destroying whole communities, essentially. I, I do. I think there's a lot of similarities. Just the underlying ideology between what's going on in the United Kingdom and the United States are very, very similar. Obviously, it's around slightly different issues and institutions. But the underlying ideology of oppressor versus oppressed is still very much there. This obsession with identity politics where mm. you are judged uh, positively or negatively on the basis of skin color or gender identity or whatever it happens to be, it, it sort of functions around this power structure dynamic that they claim is there. And so looking at the world and institutions and policies and legislation through a social justice lens creates a pretty crummy situation for people who live in the cities where these people are in charge. And I think we've seen in Democrat-run cities in the United States, and the book is actually out in uh, the United Kingdom as well, uh, I think you guys are dealing with similar issues with politicians who are viewing things through that lens. You're just seeing the, the quality of life start to deteriorate in pretty significant ways, and the data backs that up. What would you, I mean, would you say as well, I mean, a lot of these beliefs and these, um, you know, this fixation with identity politics and, and fringe kind of issues and the obsession with perhaps race and gender. I've heard these kind of things described as perhaps, you know, luxury beliefs uh, in the West. It seems like thing, I mean, there are still issues, there are still things to iron out in terms of equality and things like that. But it seems like in terms of history, we're doing pretty well at this moment in time. It seems like that, you know, if we, tr you know, the, plot a graph, racism's, re you know, reducing all the time, misogyny, women's rights increasing, things like that. Are, are we just, have we got nothing else to do? Are we all just so bored we're getting deranged by like pep ideological problems? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly an element of that, right? I mean, when you talk to some people and you realize what their concern is, there, there's a story locally in Seattle that I'm working on about fair enforcement on transit. And they say it's disproportionately impacting people of color because they're getting too many tickets. Well, that's your biggest complaint. Disproportionality arguments are incredibly lazy and frankly, they're just ignorant. But if that's your biggest complaint, generally speaking, that means things are going in the right direction. I mean, you've got people who are complaining about helmet laws for the exact same purpose. They are looking for reasons to complain about racism that doesn't quite exist instead of sitting back and celebrating the fact that we've come so incredibly far. You know, are there instances of racism or sexism or homophobia, whatever? Yeah, of course. I think the world right now is seeing a whole lot of instances of anti-Semitism, but it doesn't mean that as a society, as a government, that we have institutionalized these isms to the point where they have to be dismantled and then rebuilt. It is a claim that is made by folks who want to shame the people who are, you know, they, they have compassion, they're looking at things through uh, a, a lens of good faith, and they're being taken advantage of. I think that's how you can explain away the BLM movement in this country.
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting with BLM because uh, obviously the, that really came to the, you know, its highest prominence after the murder of George Floyd, which, I mean, it was very taboo and unpopular at the time to kind of point out to people that there is no good reason to believe racism played any part in that incident. But we had people in the UK taking the knee for a man that was killed by police in America uh, for, we you know, in a way that probably wasn't related to racism. So, I mean, has America become utterly deranged on the topic of race? And can we link this back into perhaps historical injustices? Is there a kind of overcorrection mentality at play here for perhaps for guilt about slavery and things like this? Yes, that's an underlying issue, I think, at least from the activist perspective, and that's what they're trying to instill in people, the ones at least who aren't complete grifters, but the ones who are as well are doing that. I think it's a narcissism problem, honestly. <laughs> I think we have a narcissism problem where you've got a, young, a, a lot of younger folks who are looking for a cause to take on. And you know, to an earlier point, there have certainly been historical injustices, no one claims otherwise. And those were parts of some meaningful fights, right? The whole civil rights movement that brought a lot of meaning to individual people's lives because they were fighting for something that was just, that was moral. And now they're kind of wanting to do that because they're living lives that maybe feel to them to be empty. I think a lot of that has to do probably with going away from, from religion, just in a general sense or spirituality. And they're filling that void with these crazy views. I think on race and gender, we have seen this just get completely out of control. And I wouldn't mind if it wasn't impacting other people's lives. Look, if you want to be miserable 24-7 and you want to hold these views that you're, okay, fine, I, it doesn't bother me until it bothers me, until it impacts my life directly. And what you've seen on the ground in the United States is a surge of crime, very specific kinds of crime tied directly to policies that were pursued and then implemented by these people who are radicals. And I'm glad you, you know you point out you're a sort of center left, center right, center left. Those are the folks who really generally are in control of the voting population that puts people into positions of power. And it's important for them not to get caught up in any of these movements and to be taken advantage of. But when you have control of the language and the culture, which the far left has in this country, and I think to an extent in the United Kingdom, you start to see them manipulating the conversation so that you do think that maybe you are in fact aligned with Black Lives Matter, when if you told them directly, well, this is what they actually believe, here's what they're doing, you would start to see people pushing back. And that's why BLM as a movement is over. I mean, you still have the underlying activists out there, but BLM as a movement is done because it's been exposed as extremists and scam grifters. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there were, there were instances in the UK of um, at football games, or I suppose you'd say soccer, of uh, fans booing when their players took the knee. And it was very clear to me and anyone paying attention that these fans were just booing the ideology and they wanted this kind of political movement out of their beloved sport. And this was often misrepresented in the media as uh, an admission of racism from these fans, as if they were just openly advocating for fewer rights for black people. And so I, I well, suppose it's the scam. Yes. That's so the scam, right. I mean, th this whole idea that if you don't agree that you are a racist, it's because you're a racist and you don't want to admit it. Pay me $10,000. I'll bring a consultant over to you and we'll tell you about how you're a racist until you're ready to admit it. It's very Kafkaesque, isn't it? Um, I suppose, uh, just picking up on something you said earlier, I suppose this is where I, I, I tend to uh, 
find myself politically homeless in a sense because obviously with me being against this ideologically and anti-woke if you want to call it that on the left i often find common cause with religious conservatives on the right up until the point they suggest a resurgence of religion or spirituality to kind of fill the void or uh, you know the you know combat this this woke, woke ideology as someone who's kind of like a godless secularist I, I kind of view religion when it's in full power as not a particular uh, force for good so do you really do you genuinely believe that people coming to god or a resurgence of religion might help this issue more than it damage it well i definitely don't think it would damage the issue i, I think th there's a difference between whether or not something uh can stop something or cause something right so i think that people going away from religion in a general sense even just spirituality thinking of something bigger than themselves has created the narcissism that we're dealing with that then has led to what's happening on the ground politically. I think obviously, you know, I, I get why some folks are um, uncomfortable with religious institutions. I, I think that that has, that people have some really fair complaints or criticisms, but the general belief of something bigger than yourself so that you're not thinking constantly about how you're going to serve yourself instead serving your community, I think does help things. W will it completely change the culture? No, I, I think there are a lot of things at play. I think the impact of social media, for example, plays into the narcissism problem that we have as well. I just think if we can think a little bit less about ourselves and more about others and more about, you know, a higher being that we want to sort of also try to please by pleasing others, we would just be in a better position. Okay, um, I suppose then as well. I mean, you talk about democratic-run cities in in the states and how how some of their policies have had dis disastrous outcomes, and various uh, cities are considered far more woke than than others. Perhaps I mean Portland's a great example, and we saw uh, uh, some very strange scenes over there over the last few years. You know, almost um, well, uh, I forgot the name of what they call them, but the kind of exclusion zones that they set up, little miniature communist experiments playing out in in portland and i just want to get your uh, opinion on why why wasn't the law enforced uh, there in the direction of these people who are kind of occupying parts of the city why were they just allowed to do that it's very confusing observing from across the pond yeah and it happened a little bit in portland that was actually happening here in seattle which is well, seattle of course. <laughs> the people know me because i was covering that um in a pretty significant way for tucker carlson the, the, the reason why it happened is you had a bunch of terrified progressive politicians mixed in with politicians who are very radical who both did not want to upset the activist crowd who was responsible for what ended up happening and others who agreed 100% with what was happening. They truly believed that they were fighting some kind of institutionalized racism within the Seattle Police Department and with the Portland Police Bureau. So they had political backing. It was at a time when if you said anything critical of BLM, you were immediately deemed a racist. And at the same time, to complicate matters, you had President Trump at the time coming out and speaking forcefully against a lot of the writing that was taking place and some of the dangerous activism that was happening. And so you had these progressive politicians locally who didn't want to be seen as aligned with Donald Trump. So they wanted to be seen as aligned with the activist group that they thought posed a threat to their future in politics or could be used to stay 
in politics in the future. And it ended up spiraling out of control. It was, it was just from my perspective as someone who was actually covering it and was there. And I was there after dark. I didn't go back into a hotel room like some of the national correspondents who came out to cover this. Like you knew immediately it was going to be a disaster. You knew people were going to die because there, were vi there was violence every single day. And ultimately it led to the murders of two black boys all in the name of Black Lives Matter. You had an attempted arson, you had vandalism all over the place. You had a, a deaf girl, a deaf woman, who was living in one of the tents inside the occupied zone who nearly was raped by someone. So understand this was never the, the jovial place that people wanted to pretend. They wanted it to be that because they didn't want to have, a, they didn't want to have the, any bad PR and be blamed for the fact that they removed the police department from the precinct. It, it was just embarrassing. And, you know, I, I still, to this day, I deal with people who think I was making up most of my stories. It's like, I'm playing video of what it is I'm talking about. It seems I'm, I'm not very good at CGI, I promise you. This is actually <laughs> happening. And, you know, it just spiraled. Um, and I write a lot about that in What's Killing America. You uh, we, we we mentioned Do Donald Trump just just moments ago. So I I mean this is a the, the Trump phenomenon is is absolutely fascinating to me. And it seemed to me quite clear that he was elected in no small part based on people just being fed up with a sort of politically correct finger wagging being imposed and imposed on them and you know in culture society the workplace they, that definitely played into it how the left had behaved for the, for the longest time. Uh, he obviously left office in in a cloud of disgrace. Uh, refused to accept the election result, as we know. Uh, and I usually wouldn't be talking about him except for the fact that there's a good chance that he may end up back in the White House, or at least that's what I'm I'm told. Where are you on this Trump might be back in the White House? Uh, yeah, I mean, the polling, the, the polling indicates very strongly that if the election were held today, yes, based upon our electoral college system, uh, he would be back in the White House. And I think that is a combination of a couple things. Number one, there's still that significant unease with some of the radical positions on the left. But ultimately, it's about the fact that people remember what their lives were like under Trump pre-COVID versus right now under Joe Biden. And just economically speaking, there's zero doubt people were better off financially four years ago, five years ago, six years ago than they are right now. And it's in large part because of inflation. It's because of the spending. And when you've got a president who's 112 years old talking about Bidenomics, is that, that's his signature accomplishment. Well, you're branding your name around the one issue that everyone is upset with. So it's just not a very good you know, PR strategy. And you, know, you throw in his age and how he acts his age. It gets a lot of people really, really uncomfortable. I, I did a panel the other day with a Democrat the congresswoman who was pointing out, well, you know, Donald Trump isn't uh, that much younger than Joe Biden. Correct, but he doesn't act it. You, you can't compare the energy level of a Donald Trump to a Joe Biden, regardless of how you feel about any one of them politically and the content that they're, they're, they're speaking. One clearly seems like he's unwell and won't survive a second term. And people are very, very curious about that uh, and concerned about that, including Democrats. So, I mean, Trump was known for being anti-woke. I keep using this word and then he'd push back on political correctness. He'd say exactly what he thought. And obviously his fan base loved that 
as well. I just wanted to get your opinion on whether or not he is an asset in this fight or whether he kind of produces more heat than light, to use an old phrase. Do you think he's a liability on this front? Well, it kind of depends, not to get too much in the weeds, but down ticket, he will hurt, I think, Republicans, but he will not be hurt himself because I think there are enough people who can justify the, the, the folks who are uncomfortable with his personality. And yeah, yeah he's, he's crass. There's no doubt about it. He's, he's brash guy. That's his personality. And that's always been his personality. People who don't like that will hold their nose and vote for him because they at least want to get back economically to where they were. But they'll say, I'm not going to vote for other Republicans. They're essentially judging other Republican candidates by their distrust or disgust with Donald Trump's personality. I think that that will hurt. When you have two other candidates who are very strong who are running in both Nikki Haley as well as Ron DeSantis, they would be Joe Biden. I think that they don't pose a liability to anyone down ticket, specifically just assuming that we have quality candidates that are on the ballots. I think when you look at the polling, frankly, both Trump and Biden are considered weak. They just are. Trump is least weak uh, when you're comparing it to, to Joe Biden, but they're both weak. And when you have just a generic Democrat going up against Donald Trump, Donald Trump loses. When you have a generic going up against DeSantis or Haley, Haley and DeSantis will win or it's it's basically neck and neck. And so Democrats have to figure that out. Uh, personally, I hope they don't because I don't want to see a Democrat in the White House. Certainly none of the the possible names that uh, would step up and fill that void if, if Joe Biden were to drop out for some reason. What do you think will bring about the end of this this kind of woke movement? I suppose, in a way, could it possibly be the argument about gender? Because it feels like the race thing, not a lot of people want to throw their hat in the ring. It's a thankless, thankless argument to be having. It's, it can be somewhat esoteric. A lot of people don't really know the particulars and, and stats about crime and law and order and things like that. Whereas everybody instinctively knows the difference between a man and a woman and what makes a man, a man and a woman, a woman. And it seems like this idea of uh, self-ID and gender ideology being thrust upon society at large may just be the thing that turns the ordinary person around to stand up and say no thank you to this movement now? On on that particular issue, they are saying no thank you. The, The problem is the folks on the radical side of this issue have control of the culture and they have pretty much just pushed forward with their agenda and made institutional changes that are not going to be easy to to undo. Uh, I had an exclusive story this week, the Port of Seattle, which operates our airport, they're putting tampon dispensers in all the men's bathrooms. And they started putting them in the men's bathrooms before the women's bathrooms, right? Now, why, how, how does that happen? Well, they're just doing it. They, they didn't do a poll, obviously. They're not listening to, to the everyday person who says, wait, that doesn't really make sense. And the same is true when it comes to sports, where you've got schools just unilaterally deciding, yeah, we're going to allow a biological boy who identifies as a transgender girl compete with biological girls. They're just doing it. And when you just do it, because you happen to be right now in a position of power, it's very hard to undo. You get some pushback, right? You get usually some political consequences, depending on, you know, the time that you get to vote. But by doing that up front and just, you know, changing language uh, and having it get accepted by the media, it's not easy to, to walk back. And we're seeing that right now as it relates to the crime crisis. So you had a whole bunch of different radical 
policies and laws go on the books, basically telling folks that the criminals are the victims, not the actual victims. And so you created this culture of lawlessness. You defunded the police, you stopped putting people in jail. And of course, crime exploded all across the areas that did this, and then it started to spread. Well, you've got councils and mayors who walked a lot of those policies back in some cities and have acknowledged that it didn't work. But the stats aren't necessarily follow, following the same path. They're not coming back to where they were. Slowly, it's starting to go in that direction for the most part, but not quickly because you change the culture. You change the culture around crimes and how you treat police and how you look at the criminal justice system. And those are it's like going on a diet. You, you can work really, really hard for three, four months. You lose two or three pounds, but then you go to Vegas for a weekend and you gain seven. So that's kind of what we're doing here. It took a really long time to get to a place where we were con generally content with the low numbers, uh, the low stats as it relates particularly to violent crime. And then bam, just like that, over the course of a year, you started to see it skyrocket and then skyrocket again. Yeah, I mean, I'm very envious of the, the the First Amendment in America. I just think it's the gold standard where freedom of expression is concerned. It's something that's sorely needed in in the UK. I don't know if you're aware, but I mean, we we're a culture and a society where we we may get a visit from the police or be required to come down to a police station, depending on what we've tweeted online or posted on our Facebook. We just had an example of it this week. Actually, a woman in the northwest of the country had been called in to be interviewed by the police and cautioned because she'd said that men are women on on social media in most cases not even to anyone individually just a general opinion and i just wanted to get your view on what you think when you see that kind of thing coming over from the uk where people are being arrested and, and are sometimes convicted for the things they write on social media well it certainly terrifies me someone who goes to the united kingdom several times a year uh, i'm always in the back of my mind wondering if i'm going to get in trouble myself probably not as an american but look it's terrifying that People live in places where they can't really express themselves. Now, that doesn't mean there's not going to be consequences with your expression, but it should mean that the government isn't going to provide those consequences with that expression. And it, it's happening because the people in power hold certain views. And again, that's why I wrote What's Killing America, and I'm glad that it's available to folks in the United Kingdom, because it's not just something. The underlying issues, even though the book is obviously focused on the United States, really tackle some of the same underlying issues in the United Kingdom. When it comes to censorship, I was given this quote back in like 2004 um, by, by someone who I consider a, a mentor. And he said, imagine the power to censor in the hands of your worst enemy. So right now, folks on the right, folks who are center right, folks who are really even center left and reasonable on some of these issues, they're experiencing what that means. Because this could very easily be turn completely around where we're going to start punishing folks who are saying that gender is fluid. You get to hold that position. I don't care if you hold that position, but if you were being punished from a government standpoint, if the cops were calling you in because you said, no, I identify as a woman, even though I'm bi biologically male. Well, the folks right now who are celebrating the takedown of conservative speech would be up in arms, rightly so. So you can't quite have it both ways. We're either going to allow this kind of expression and you can fight the expression with your own expression, or you can lean into this sort of authoritarian um, posture that is ultimately going to bite you at some point. It might not happen right now, it might not happen next year, but it's eventually going to happen.
Is it not a sense as well? I mean, does it not depress you sometimes that we're all down in the weeds fighting over who gets to wear a dress and, uh, you know, identity-based squabbles, that there are real serious issues in society that need addressing and we're not getting to them? Well, I, I think this has become a real issue. You, mm. you could wear your dress if you want. That's not really what's at stake here, and no one's debating that. It's how you're impacting other people. And when it comes specifically to kids, when it comes to young girls who fought, gener you know, you had generations before them fighting for equality, only now to lose scholarships and opportunities to biological men who have an innate advantage on, you know, on the field. It's, that's just patently unfair. And I think that that's a serious issue that needs to be grappled with. And of course, the legal implications associated with no longer accepting that there are differences between men and women, that you can just decide that you hold a different gender. And by the way, you can decide multiple times throughout the day. And if you don't use the proper pronoun, all of a sudden you could lose your job or you could be sued for discrimination. I think that those that has become unfortunately a really significant issue. Yeah. Okay, Jason. Well, it's been it's been a pleasure talking to you. I'm definitely going to read your book. Uh, and I, I have plenty of friends in America. And I try to get over there as often as I can. So I, it's kind of a lot of these issues are close to my my heart as well. Uh, so thank you uh, for coming on and speaking. Just maybe you can just give our guest, uh, listeners a reminder where they can find your book. Yeah, so you can find it um, Amazon.com or Amazon.uk. And you can find it at uh, a lot of actually your bookstores in the United Kingdom online. Um, probably better than going into the brick and mortar at this point, but uh, it's called What's Killing America? Inside the Radical Left's Tragic Destruction of Our Cities. And it makes an amazing Christmas and Hanukkah gift. <laughs> Jason, great to speak to you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Take care.